The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If you're looking for a regiment-by-regiment account of the Battle of Gettysburg, you know you've got Harry Fonz with 500 pages on the first day and another 500 pages on the second day and hundreds more on Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill and so on. If you want a historical novel that relies heavily on real historical sources at Gettysburg, of course, you've got The Killer Angels. But if you're one of us who thinks the Western theater is where it's at, what have you got? Well, now you have a detailed account, in many cases down to the regiment, in a lightly fictionalized historical novel called Seven Days in July, a historic account of the Battle of Atlanta. We'll talk with author Kenneth A. Griffiths tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina. It's a quiet, deserted courtyard of the Brewster Building that I'm looking out on tonight from the different windows of the world headquarters of Civil War Talk Radio. Now move down the hall from A315 to A320 in case you're 
looking for me here one day. But while I'm still in the history department, not speaking for the history department or the university or the UNC system or anyone else, just me, my guest I know will do the same as we talk about Civil War history tonight. Once again, thanks to all the listeners uh, who sent interesting emails over the past week. Enjoyed in particular the uh, top 10 list of best shows over the last 12 years, which uh, I, I really like because I don't often get a chance to go back and listen to shows after they're done. I'm preparing the next one. And it was interesting to hear, particularly interesting that the number one show on this listener's uh, top 10 list was the interview with Harry Stout, who uh, wrote, uh, what was it, the uh, On the Altar of the Nation. I think it is the only author I've ever had on the show whose book I really, really did not like, uh, did not agree with at all. And apparently that must have made for interesting conversation. It makes me think I should change the philosophy of the show, become a shouting pundit, uh, tear the guests apart limb from limb every week verbally. And, uh, uh, well, no, I'm not going to do that. Never mind. Well, football season is back on, of course. Uh, And the question on everybody's mind, of course, is what's with Chelsea? Five games played, only four points. Last year's champions are just above the relegation level. Uh, But that's English football. And this week, all eyes turn from the Premier League to the Pitt-Greenville Soccer League, where the fall season begins. I'll be taking the field with my new team, Greenville FC. Each team has to have three women or elderly, over 45 years of age, players on the field. Uh, So I'm one of the designated geezers for my team. And if I'm back doing the show again next Wednesday, you'll know I survived opening match day this Sunday. And meanwhile, in American football, the Michigan Wolverines delighted their fans with a level of passion and execution we haven't seen in years. NECU's Pirates almost knocked off Florida, lost by a touchdown uh, on the road. Overall, a good weekend. And in Civil War news, uh, over the last two weeks, many of us were surprised to learn from uh, a national figure, one of the uh, current Republican presidential candidates, in fact, that the Dred Scott decision of 1857 is apparently still the law of the land. African Americans are not citizens. Um, Apparently, news of the 14th Amendment has not yet reached uh, this person, who I will not name to spare him the humiliation, Uh, but apparently news of the 14th Amendment has not reached his state yet, which just adds insult to injury uh, because his state's flagship school was defeated by Toledo last weekend. Uh, And as a Michigan man, I can feel his pain. That happened to us in 2008. But as a historian, all I can say is good grief. Uh, Read a damn book before you open your pie hole on American history again. Uh, That's just an embarrassment to us all. Well, the place to get books on American history is right here at Civil War Talk Radio, or at least to hear about them. We'll have some good ones in the weeks ahead. Next week, Dan Davis joins us. He is the co-author of several books uh, for the Emerging Civil War series from uh, Savas Beatty. Dan Daniel T. Davis is uh, the co-author of, among other things, Bloody Autumn, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1864. We'll be talking with him about that and his other work. On September 30th, 
Matthew Gallman will be with us to talk uh, about his work, Defining Duty, the what's big subtitle, Personal Choice, uh, full title, Defining Duty in the Civil War, Personal Choice, Popular Culture, and the Union Homefront. And Matt has written a lot about uh, the Union Homefront throughout uh, his career, and it'll be interesting to get his take on that story. October 7th, we'll have Betty Brennan, who's the president of Taylor Studios. They are a, a museum exhibit firm. They've done work on various Civil War museums and Lincoln-related museums around the country, and we'll pull back the curtain and find out uh, how it happens that exhibits get built, what's, what's the magic behind the presentation that we all like to see when we go to visit museums. On October 14th, Tom Robertson, uh, Thomas Hurd Robertson Jr., is the editor of Resisting Sherman, a surgeon's, Confederate Surgeon's Journal and the Civil War in the Carolinas, 1865. We'll be talking with him. You can find out more about these shows and other ones upcoming uh, from our Facebook page. Uh, the, it's called Impediments of War, which is also the name of the website, impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney tells us all who's coming up on the show, has links to who's been on the show in the past. You can, of course, listen through other methods, through iTunes and Shoutcast and various other techniques. But if you're listening to me now, you already know that, so no need to tell you more. And finally, when you visit impedimentsofwar.org, don't be shy about clicking on the PayPal link where you can send me money, money that I'll use this week to pay my Organization of American Historian annual dues, keep the journal coming to me and keep uh, supporting the professional organization that unites all historians of American topics. the dues get more ridiculous every year, so uh, uh, that's this week's pleading for assistance. Uh, next week, it's back to uh, things like uh, Knob Creek, the excellent bourbon that I was introduced to by Doug Wilson at the Lincoln Studies Center in Knox College a few years ago, named for the same place where uh, Abraham Lincoln grew up in Kentucky. Uh, this is a well, I may be getting in trouble. I don't know. You're not supposed to, Well, I used to not be able to advertise alcohol. This is not an advertisement, just pointing out it's, it is an excellent bourbon. Uh, but this week's money, no, I'll use it for something real, for dues. So there you go. Well, let's get to our show. Our guest tonight uh, brings us back to the legal world for the third time in the last four shows. Our guest is a lawyer. How this happens not entirely certain. We'll find out. Kenneth A. Griffiths was uh, uh, a lawyer with the Judge Advocate General's Corps in the United States Army, served for nearly 30 years in the Army Reserves, uh, went on to practice law uh, in, in private practice, and also uh, and currently serves on the Georgia Civil War Commission, and has written the book we'll talk about tonight, Seven Days in July, a historic account of the Battle of Atlanta. Mr. Griffiths, are you there? Yes, I am. I've enjoyed it so much so far. Well, well, good. Welcome to the show. Um, do you go by Ken? Is that an okay nickname? Uh, uh, I prefer Ken. Uh, Ken, Ken, and please call me Jerry uh, uh, to keep things moving swiftly about. 
so well, it sounds uh, Ken, like it could be a good show, the uh, Ken and Jerry show. Oh, I like that. We'll, we'll have to make <laughs> we'll make this work. We just had some ice cream. That's right. <laughs> the uh, uh, your let me start off topic with the Georgia Civil War Commission that you're a member of. Uh, what is it, and what do they do? It's a small commission. Uh, people are named by either the governor or the uh, uh, lieutenant governor or the speaker of the house. So they serve, uh, I think, a two or three year term, and we spend a very small amount of money uh, on uh, trying to uh, enhance the people's knowledge of what took place during the Civil War in Georgia. Well, that's a, a wor- worthwhile cause. I, I think so. I'm a, a fiscal conservative, so it pains me to spend the money. But on the other hand, uh, in this instance, a private industry hasn't stepped forward to uh, to uh, make it happen. So it's an effort that's a, a labor of love, I think. Well, I, I think it's, it's well done. As someone who is here making my living off the public uh, purse as a professor at a, a state institution, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the times when private industry doesn't doesn't do the job and we have to uh, rely on the taxpayers to get what we need, and it sounds like the Georgia Civil War Commission is, is part of that. Uh, let me ask you about your, your interest in the uh, in the Civil War. How, how did you come by it? What, uh, what brought you to write a book like this? Well, uh, my interest was originally uh, as a result of the death of my grandfather. A, book, a, a box arrived at our house that I guess constituted my dad's share of his estate, and then it were two uh, swords, a uh, three-piece telescope, uh, a box of percussion caps, uh, double barrel, and uh, uh, the uh, ten-volume set of the t- pictorial history of the Civil War. Uh, those things for a 10-year-old boy were uh, absolutely uh, uh, exciting to me. So that's where was the beginning of all of it. Uh, that, that's wonderful to get a, a, a to have books delivered like that. I, I know exactly that feeling <laughs> when, when some, someone in the family gives to the, the kid. I, I got a copy of the, uh, the West Point Atlas of the Civil War when I was little from a family friend. Uh, the same thing, like, we don't need this anymore. Here you go. And, wow. <laughs> opens up a whole world. Well, it really so, did. Uh, did you grow up in uh, Georgia? Well, I uh, was sent off to military school uh, from Florida uh, when I was about uh, 15 or 16, I guess, and uh, spent a couple of years there before I went back to, uh, to Tallahassee to go to undergraduate school. But uh, I was raised, didn't really grow up, but was raised in a little town called Winter Haven, Florida. So what about the Battle of Atlanta? Uh, what, why that as a topic? Well, the man who had, the, had owned the two swords and the, uh, and the uh, telescope was an artillery captain in the uh, 4th Division of the 15th Corps. And as I started to learn a little bit about him... Uh, I discovered that he'd been right here in Atlanta and had come down from, uh, come over from Vicksburg and had participated in the battle at Lookout Mountain. And I thought, well, it'd be nice to just uh, relocate him in my own mind as to exactly where he'd been. And uh, so uh, that started a process of uh, of reading and uh, driving and looking, and uh, ultimately the book came out of that. 
so if he was in the 15th Corps, then you're saying he was a Union soldier. Oh, that's absolutely correct. He was, uh, he'd moved from Philadelphia to uh, Iowa when he was 16 to open a hardware store, as I understand it, and uh, helped raise a, uh, an infantry company. Uh, it was in the infantry for uh, through the uh, battle at uh, Pea Ridge, I guess it was, and then uh, decided he really ought to be of a higher rank and grade. Walked back, went back to Iowa, and they made him the uh, battery commander of the first Iowa battery. Occasionally, here in eastern North Carolina, uh, we'll get folks who are proud of their Civil War ancestor and. When they dig into it, they discover, uh, sometimes to their surprise, that their ancestor, uh, who they thought was a loyal uh, North Carolina Confederate, turns out actually to have fought for the Union. There were a lot of Unionists in North Carolina. Um, your ancestor from Iowa, there's no mystery about which side uh, an Iowan would be on, but is that ever, does that ever come up? Uh, at, at your local Civil War roundtable or elsewhere? Uh, uh, the, yes, the I'm Yankee? Really the quote, lone Yankee. I'm not sure how uh, <laughs> one becomes uh, inoculated in that, uh, in one cult or the other, but uh, on the Civil War Commission, I'm referred to as the one Yankee. So <laughs> <Well>, that <laughs> my mother-in-law said, don't tell people in Atlanta that you're uh, that your ancestor was a uh, Union soldier, and I have tried to explain to her that we've uh, we've moved on beyond that, and that we uh, we take people for their historical significance, but they don't uh, they don't bind us in any way. Well, that, that's a that's an important lesson, and one uh, as somebody who teaches public history, we encounter that a lot here, and uh, uh, I think that's a, a critical lesson for all of us to uh, to look at going forward. Uh, to get beyond some of the issues that otherwise divide people. Uh, well, the well books I think certainly... so, and, and Go ahead. to add to your point further, uh, uh, it was not a monolithic South any more than it was a monolithic uh, North, and uh, people are people, and uh, while they may have points of agreement, they may have points of disagreement, and uh, it's, uh, it's important to realize that everybody south of the Mason-Dixon line doesn't talk like me. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. And and the uh, uh, two weeks ago, when John White was on the show talking about uh, Northerners who opposed emancipation, uh, clearly there was no monolithic block during the election of 1864. Well, we're going to take a short break now. We're going to come back and talk uh, in some detail about Seven Days in July. It's the book by Kenneth A. Griffiths, our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P R O K O P. O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Kenneth A. Griffiths, author of Seven Days in July, a historic account of the Battle of Atlanta. Uh, Ken, this book was striking in its uh, appearance in some ways, this was sent to me by, uh, I think, the publicist, but by your publisher. And uh, one of the things that one immediately notices about it is that it has, uh, I'm going to get the exact number here, 118 chapters in 500-some pages. So each chapter is very short. Um, as I was reading it, it, it struck me that it had the flavor of a movie script. Uh, there's a, there's a short, intense scene with one set of characters, then new chapter, new set of characters, new location. Uh, each chapter begins saying who's in it and where it is, uh, almost as if it were a script. Did did that cross your mind as you were writing it? Not really. I'm not really much of a movie goer. Uh, I like books, and uh, it. Uh, I guess I just didn't have a lot to say in each chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it it reads quickly. It it, it has the that benefit of, of moving you along uh, through it. Uh, one of the other things that struck me when I when I got it was the the use, uh, especially in in the opening chapters, of the official records of the Civil War. And I know listeners are familiar. If you're listening to the show, you've probably dipped into the OR at one time or another for uh, uh, your own interest or for research. Uh, 126 volumes are there for the official records of the War of the Rebellion and now widely available online, but some of us still have our our paper copies. Uh, And you've got excerpts from that, documents in the form of uh, letters or communications between generals, uh, telegrams or or, uh, messages and you've reproduced them uh, as, uh, I guess I'd call it a sidebar. It's not really an illustration, but uh, I'm looking at a typical page here. Uh, there's what looks like a piece of paper and the text of a message, say, from uh, Joe Johnston to Braxton Bragg, July 15, 1864, is reproduced. Uh, it's not a picture of a document. It, it's it's still uh, a typeset. Uh, but the font looks like handwriting, so one gets the impression you're reading Bragg's actual message to Johnston. And when I saw that these were in here, 
the first thing I did was go pull the volume of the OR and check to see if these were just a novelist's ideas what Bragg might have said to Johnston. And I find no, the, the ones I checked, they're actually, you went to the OR and you've got the actual document here. Uh, is that the case every time we see one of these uh, sort of pictures of a message that they are real messages? Uh, as, as much as I could make of them. Uh, it's always uh, when I read books and they, and they would say he received a message that said such and such, which is the author's sort of conclusion or summary of it, it always uh, 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 kind of makes my curiosity uh, bubble up a little bit, and I always think, well, I wonder what the message really said. Uh, the one that always comes to mind is Lee's observations about Hood, and they always quote the line was uh, uncertain about other characteristics or something to that effect. And I thought, well, I'd really like to know what Lee really said. Maybe he took that back uh, at the front end or the back end somewhere. So that was the uh, that was the purpose of it. Well, that, that as I would guess, that's probably a common reaction of many of us uh, who, who study history. Is, is you want to know, you want to know more, and uh, it, it's because of those that we're having this conversation. Uh, Typically, in Civil War Talk Radio, I will hear from uh, uh, authors or publishers of historical fiction uh, on a fairly regular basis, and I have a very polite form response that I send them, pointing out that there's so much good history coming out, it's impossible to keep up with that, and so I regret that I don't have uh, time to to also deal with historical fiction on, on this program. And other than Jeff Shara and maybe one or two other cases in 12 years, I don't think I've ever uh, uh, had an example of historical fiction on the show uh, for that very reason that you, you decided. You're reading a book, uh, there's a quote or a story or a, a, a message, and my immediate thought is, well, did this really happen? Uh, show me the citation. Show me how you know that. How do you know this really fascinating anecdote took place and there's the reference note you go to the back you discover okay it's from the or or it's from somebody's memoir or some letter collection somewhere and you go away thinking all right that now i know a little more than i did before and after checking up on a couple of your sort of illustrated versions of these messages i said okay yeah this guy's done the homework he, he's these are from the the real official records and I could start reading it thinking I'm actually adding to my knowledge as I go, not just entertaining myself. Uh, so the, the question this raises with me, why not go whole, whole hog and write this as, as history? Why, why choose a novel format? I don't know. I was reading part of the book today uh, uh, in preparation for this. It's been a while since I have, and uh, <laughs> I found it quite enjoyable. I said, hell, there's a pretty good story here. <laughs> I don't know. That's just the way it came out. I didn't start with a preconceived idea about uh, whether it would be uh, Simon Pure history or fiction, but I've always liked uh, Killer Angels from the first moment that I opened it up uh, mm-hmm. through the uh, – I like Michener. There are some other uh, people of that uh, nature that uh, have influenced what the way I the way I write, I suppose, and uh, – uh, I'm, I like to say that fiction sometimes can uh, 
illuminate what otherwise are dark, unknowable corners of history. And uh, I think that uh, sometimes that adds to the history anyway. Uh, uh, we don't, uh, history usually is one man's opinion who writes it down or passes it off in some fashion. And uh, maybe the fiction's as real as the history, I don't know. Well, I, I think you're onto something that there's, there is an element of fiction in history writing in that, you know, none of us were there. And even if we were there, we didn't see the whole thing as it happened. Uh, none of us know the whole truth about the contemporary world, much less 150 years ago. So at some point, there has to be some supposition, some theorizing, some uh, uh, even some guesswork. But the reason I don't normally read historical fiction is is that I can't use it. Uh, let me give an example in in the book here. Uh, i'm I'm preparing a talk for the Raleigh Civil War Roundtable in November. And your description of how Walker's division on july twenty second eighteen sixty four is delayed in their attack by uh, Terry's Mill Pond, a civilian guide leads them. And they are going to get on the Union flank, and suddenly there's this big pond in front of them. General Walker's not happy with the civilian guide. Now, I want to use this anecdote in the talk I'm going to give, but I can't until I go back and research it and see. I'm pretty sure, I I know Walker's division made an attack on July 22nd. Uh, I know they were near the pond. It makes sense they probably were diverted by it. I don't know if they had a civilian guide. I don't know if the veins in General Walker's neck bulged or not when he was so mad uh, to be stopped there, as you portray it. And I can live with that. I, I don't need to know his, his, his immediate reaction. Well, he did have a civilian guide. Okay, th- that's what I want to know. How, how and he was furious with him, but he didn't shoot okay. him. <laughs> so, th- th- and that's... I mean, that, that's what got me as I'm reading this book is, you know, I, I have the privilege of being able to talk to you and say, well, so did you really have a civilian guide and did that really happen? And even ask you, so is that in the official records or is that in a, a, a do you happen to recall how you came across that? Um, there's, a, there's a biography of Walker, I think, uh, called To the Manor Born, or I think that's correct. And uh, Okay. Somewhere in there, that story is told uh, in more or less the same. I don't think that they had the conversations that I have, but uh, I think the conversations are logical and probably flow in a, in a way in which uh, they pro- they very well might have occurred. Uh, so if you get back to your one-man idea of that one man can't uh, tell you what history is, uh, I suspect of the 10 or 12 people gathered around, at least somebody could come back from the grave and say that's the way they remembered it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody would would probably agree. And that's uh, I mean I think we do a lot of that uh in any historical writing as as you suggest and it, I certainly wasn't troubled reading this. I I enjoyed uh, the flow of it and the the, the insight you. into the battle. Uh and the, the you know what I could recognize as as I'm sure readers of, of Killer Angels recognize as they're going uh, when you get an extended conversation between Chamberlain and, and uh, uh, Sergeant uh, Kilrain, that, that obviously this is something from the, the author's historical imagination, and, and you can set that aside. But when there's some otherwise kind of crazy thing like this British officer observing the battle, you know, if you've read the 
Fremantle's diary of his trip through the southern states, you know, oh, that's real. Right. Uh, Shara, Shara really lifted that from there. Right. And like, so, so that's what frustrates me as a reader, and I'm not speaking for all readers or all listeners to the show, uh, but just as a, a practicing historian, is that, you know, if this book had an index and reference notes, I'd be tearing it up. I'd be using it for all kinds of stuff. As it is, it inspires me to read more, and I'm going to dig up more about this campaign to, to use for my own purposes. But, uh, you know... It, it, well, I may have served a greater purpose to... Uh, if I'd given it all to you, then uh, <laughs> then you wouldn't do all this extra heavy lifting, and, uh, and uh, I appreciate it. I think any time we can get people to, to do more with the history, we'll all be better off for it. That's right. So it's it's a character builder for uh, for me. I, I, I can I can I think it was that. a character builder for my wife anyway. How long did it take you to write this book? I wrote on it off and on for about ten years. Mm-hmm. The uh, I'm slow. Well, it, it's books take they take time. Uh, good books take time to to produce. Um, let me ask you about some some of the specific takes uh, on on the battle. As I'm reading this, the impressionistically, the thing that really sticks in my mind. Uh, I was reading this on airplanes to and from the Lincoln Study Center meeting last weekend in, in Galesburg, Illinois, and uh, in airports, and it really, you know, made the time pass quickly. Partly because I was thinking, oh, I'm glad it's not so hot where I'm sitting. Uh, these guys, the impression you get in every page is it was really hot in July of '64, and the terrain, uh, the mud, the uh, the environment really influenced what happened. Uh, the terrain, the weather, everything uh, was was that is that an interpretation? Oh, I, I think so. Uh, it was. I don't know if it's ever been cool in July in Georgia, but. Uh, it wasn't this time, and uh, the, especially on Hardy's night march, uh, uh, it's dark. Uh, they don't know where they're going. They don't have good maps. They don't have good intelligence. Uh, uh, wheelers, uh, mounted horsemen, are riding through their ranks. There's uh, horsemen who are all over the road, and uh, they've been they've been going for a long time anyway. And on top of that, they're hot, tired, and thirsty. So uh, I think the uh, I think as part of the situational report that any uh, good infantry officer would present before this, the weather would figure prominently. And, and certainly that it, it, it shows up, one feels it uh, as you read the book. Uh, likewise, the terrain. Uh, you, you talk a lot about uh, the ground. One gets a real sense for what the ground uh, you know, looked like and how it influenced the battle. Did, can you talk about that? Have you visited a lot of these battlefields? Uh, I've been to. I've been to. I mean, it's not a very big battlefield around Atlanta, and there's not much left. But uh, you can. I don't hear the sound of guns when I stand there, but I, I recognize that a lot of the terrain features are the same. The creeks are the same. The rivers the same. The hills, by and large, are the same. So you can get some sense of it. And uh, I spent a very short period of time in the. Uh, in the Army Infantry, and uh, terrain uh, was a big part of uh, my six weeks at Fort Benning. And uh, I, it's, 
it's hard to carry the weight these guys carried regardless of which side they were on and whether they were on interior lines or exterior lines, whether they were diverging or converging. It was a, it was a tough place to be. Well, that certainly seems, uh, again, that really comes through uh, reading this. One of the, the common interpretations of the battles around Atlanta after uh, Hood replaces Joe Johnston in the summer of 64 is that uh, Johnston, is that Hood essentially used up what was left of the Army of the Tennessee in these, these uh, attacks, all of which ultimately are unsuccessful. In the book, one gets the feeling, hey, this next attack might work. Um, I, 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 I'm sort of of two minds. On the one hand, historians would say, well, you know, these attacks weren't going to work. There was, you don't have any examples of armies being defeated in the field decisively. Uh, but on the other hand, they wouldn't have made the attacks if they didn't think someone didn't think they were going to work. And, and you, you seem to capture for me the. Uh, the Confederate hopefulness that the last one didn't work, but this next one, that's going to work. Well, thank you for saying that. uh, Hood's uh, DNA or personality or past experience or insecurity or whatever it is that drives people, that motivates them. Uh, Of course, the battle at Peachtree Creek, I think, was, was largely derivative of what I believe Joe Johnson must have shared with him, but his uh, his masterpiece, his uh, his work of art, was this night march and uh, an effort to envelop uh, uh, the Seventeenth Corps, which he believed to be quote in the air. And uh, uh, I, I think it was if it had worked, uh, and it certainly worked at Chancellorsville. Uh, with a different with a different set of players, but uh, hmm. if it had worked, Hood would have been uh, seen as a uh, a unique military genius. Uh, I think it couldn't work. I don't think you can roll up uh, the Army of the Tennessee or the Army of the Ohio and then further roll up Thomas's uh, Army of the Cumberland. I don't believe that's possible. But hmm. they made a they made a terrific run at it, and uh, uh, while they weren't successful, as some people tell me, they uh, don't know who who won the battle till the end of the book, and then they're still a little uncertain. I think that's probably closer to the way the people felt than the way historians look at it today. That's that's a very good point. I want to come back to that. We're going to take a short break, and we'll pick up on that point in just a minute, talking today with Kenneth A. Griffiths, author of Seven Days in July, A Historic Account of the Battle of Atlanta. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking this evening with Kenneth A. Griffiths, author of Seven Days in July, a historic account of the Battle of Atlanta. Uh, We ended the last second talking about the question of who won the battle or battles of Atlanta in July 1864. Of course, from a, a perspective of 150 years, it's clear that these were not successful battles for the Confederacy. But, uh, Ken, as you note, your book ends with some, perhaps some readers who aren't so familiar with the history, even wondering, well, who exactly won the battle, given that the Confederates did launch a flank attack that achieved some of its objectives on, on July 22nd. And that's an interesting point, uh, as you just pointed out a minute ago, that the people at the time might have a different view than we do. Gary Gallagher has shown how the Confederate soldiers retreating from Gettysburg in their letters home are not writing about, oh, we just lost the turning point of the war. They're like, oh, well, that didn't go so well, but we're still doing fine. They didn't see it as a big defeat, uh, at least some of them. And uh, you're suggesting uh, some of the Confederate soldiers here at Atlanta did not necessarily share our perspective uh, from from a century and a half later. Well, I think that's right. If you, John Bell Hood had his own reasons for uh, for uh, communicating as he did with uh, with uh, Richmond, but uh, I suspect it was heartfelt. If you could hook him up to a polygraph, uh, he thought that the capture of the flags and the the cannon and the, the uh, near success. Uh, well, might might may, may be viewed honestly as a success. So uh, uh, we didn't have the benefit of a polygraph then, and probably better off not to have had. But uh, he he may have believed his own stuff at that point. Yeah, it's an interesting question. We uh, did, if Joe Johnson had stayed in command, you suggest his plans were largely 
uh, implemented by Hood when Hood took over. Uh, do you suppose the campaign might have come out differently had Johnston remained in command? Uh, it would have been different, but I don't think it would have been any any uh, from any substantive standpoint different. Joe Johnson, in my opinion, uh, really never uh, never understood what his job was. I think Hood actually did understand it. His execution may have left something to be desired, but uh, uh, in my in in my view, at least, uh, Joe Johnson never could get his hands wrapped around the. Uh, operational aspect or the theater-wide aspect of what he was being asked to do. Now, it's once again that's an opinion, but uh, mm-hmm. exactly what he would have done with the same situation after the Battle of Peachtree Creek, which I think would have come out about the same way had he had he dealt with it. He wanted, of course, to attack before Thomas got over the creek, and uh, mm-hmm. somehow Hood decided it would be better to attack after he got over the creek. Uh, but uh, under either circumstance, for Hood to do that two days after he's uh, selected uh, to to run the army, uh, gosh, I've had lots of new jobs. I didn't know where the restroom was at that point. So it was a pretty remarkable feat in and of itself. That's true. I guess like Meade at Gettysburg, uh, replacing Hooker uh, a few days before the battle, you, you barely know who your staff is, and suddenly you're thrust into this uh, a very difficult position, but Meade was defending, not attacking, and that's the critical difference, I, I would argue. Well, I think that makes a big difference. Uh, I, I've, th- I've thought a lot about it, but I haven't come up with an answer. If I had been uh, Joe Johnson, of course, it's easy for me to say he was a tactical, not a, not a strategic thinker. Uh, what would you have done differently down the way? I, I don't know, but... Uh, uh, and I don't know that uh, I don't know that there would have been a better thing to do once uh, Atlanta was nearly enveloped. Uh, but it's uh, whatever was done by whoever did it uh, didn't turn out particularly well for the South. Let me turn and ask you a question about the book publishing process here. This uh, this book is published by Indigo River Publishing, uh, and I gather they are non traditional publisher is this in a, are they an arrangement where the author contributes to the expenses of publishing or that they, they don't seem to be a traditional publisher where they seek out manuscripts and then pay advances and so on like that well, i don't want to get too much into your business. In advance I, <laughs> I i had i had lots of education as i went along this process and one was that uh Whatever, however the book was couched, whether it was couched as history or whether it was couched as a as a as a novel, uh, whoever the agent was or whoever the publishing house was, it was always the other one that the publishing house was was apparently interested in. So uh, mm-hmm. I had lots of rejection along the way. I had sent the uh, book to uh, Indigo because a friend had had a book published there, and they too politely rejected the book. About a year later. They called. I, I was involved in the process of getting it self-published, mm-hmm. but I understood that uh, uh, that there was a deep bias about uh, self-public uh, self-published books in the United States. And when they offered me the opportunity to have it published by a quote legitimate publisher, I dropped my plans to uh, to get it published by myself and uh, went with them. So. They are non-traditional, 
but I made no contribution to the uh, publishing cost. I did bargain with them over the royalty and uh, paid them some money for additional percentage points because I was sure, uh, Jerry, I was going to get rich. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> uh, I I contributed to a, a book last year, uh, a very well received book of, of essays on the 1862 and 63 campaigns around uh, Chattanooga. Yes, sir. Uh, that uh, Dave Powell and others were part of, and we're very pleased with the reception, critical and otherwise. And uh, I. Being that there were 10 authors, we had to split the money up some, but I just got the first royalty check last week, and uh, my wife and I went out to dinner last night and said, you can't spend more than $13.48 because that's my royalty check. Uh, Anything else comes out of your wallet. Uh, So, uh, (laughs) no, we're not getting rich doing this, I'll tell you, but it's a lot of fun. Um, well, I, I ask that because the publishing world is so different today than it was uh, even a few years ago. The the old traditional publishers are, are many of them are suffering, and, and diminishing university presses are are suffering, and we're seeing new ways of getting books out, including self publishing. And I think your instincts are right; that still carries uh, a lot of red flags. I I, I can't imagine. Uh, uh, that, it's not impossible that there can be excellent work self-published, but with nobody vetting it, uh, it's all on the reader to decide. And, and I, I mentioned earlier tonight how one, once I'd read a few chapters and verified that the sources for the OR quotes were, were, were genuine and that this author has actually done serious historical research before writing this book, then I was willing to invest the time to go through the rest of it. But... Normally, that that's hard for me to do. If it comes from university press, I know it's it's been vetted. Um, so this this book worked, but it's it's a challenge for the author, someone in your position or mine for that matter, uh, to find presses that will serve us well uh, when the publishing world is in such turmoil. Well, that's right. Of course, it may they may be in turmoil, and I, this is sort of a inappropriate remark to make, but they may be in turmoil because of their uh, hidebounness and their unwillingness to uh, to uh, deal with somebody who's not already successful. It reminds me of a, of a uh, CEO that I once knew who said, uh, we only want to hire entrepreneurs, but we don't want them to make any mistakes. <laughs> uh. <laughs> there you go. Take risks. Just make sure they all succeed. <laughs> Well, it, it's true. I've, I I don't have a literary agent myself, but I've been told, well, you can't get an agent until you publish a book, and you can't publish a book unless you have an agent. Uh, in academic publishing, a lot of professors don't have agents. You can get right. into an academic press without one, but it's it's tough, and it's hard to go beyond that without one. Uh, so they're really, I, I think that does limit what they can produce. Um, the uh, I'll. I'll since I'm always transparent and clear with authors on the show, I'll, I'll just lay this out there for you. Uh, when I first opened the package and saw that the subtitle was a historic account instead of a historical account, I thought, oh, there's no proofreader here. There's no uh, uh, copy editor to whoever put this title together has made a grammatical error on the very cover. I'm not very excited about looking at this. And I'm glad I did open it and discover, no, this is well-researched and 
you know these these typo things happen uh but it it's it it's tough uh to well, if, as if I read it tonight or this afternoon, I found several errors it's uh I can blame uh, the proofreader and the editor but uh the and I may have gotten tired of reading it, but uh, it may be like the letters I used to write i would uh I'd get a letter written, I'd mail it off, and uh, the next day as I happened to look at it before it was going in the file, mm-hmm. would realize I'd spelled something incorrectly. So it's, uh, it suffers from, uh, from, uh, being a, uh, from being the work of an incomplete author, I suspect. Well, no, we're all there. I don't know anyone who hasn't published a book who hasn't found uh, errors once they go back and look at it. and. Uh, you know, they say you never actually finish a book; you just finally give it up to the publisher. But you, you're always finding stuff you could make better. Uh, so that that's not anything unusual. Let me ask you another uh, hardball that, that I ask people who've written about battles: when you know fighting means killing, people die in these battles. There are casualties, and there are different ways to describe what happens to human beings who are killed in battle. Uh, some authors gloss over it. They just anthropomorphize. You know, McPherson's army was bruised by the fighting as if it were just a, an injury, not a fatality to a lot of people. And others go to the other extreme and indulge in what I, I call casualty pornography, where they, they seem to almost glory in the explicit descriptions of wounds and death. Um, did you think about that issue as you wrote this? Where do you feel you came down on it? I'd uh, like to think I came down somewhere in the middle. Uh, uh, not that I strive for that, but uh, I read a lot of books about a lot of battles, and sometimes the battle was, was dismissed in a sen- single sentence. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, that's inappropriate. Uh, yes. I, 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 I don't know what the right answer is. It's certainly not glorious. Guys who uh, lost two legs and had to go back home to be a farmer that had a uh, tough road to hoe, no pun intended. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, it's uh, I, I thought about it a lot, and you in the same battles being fought in each one of these chapters in one degree or another, and you can't continually repetitiously go over mm-hmm. how it was how it was going to be fought. So I, I tried hard not to make it uh, new every time, and uh, and I tried hard to be honest about it. Uh, uh, I, you look at too many guys in today's army who come home with one leg and uh, one arm, and uh, your heart goes out to them. And there's got to be some way. That's part of what history is good for: is to teach you the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The uh, with just a minute left, uh, a question I've often asked uh, people on the show: the, uh, the Civil War time machine question. If you could go back to 1864 or to the war in general for 30 minutes and return safely, uh, who would you want to talk to in that time? I don't know. I came away with a great appreciation for the so-called political generals, uh, Blair, Dodge, and Logan. Mm -hmm. I also had a high regard for Patrick Claiborne. I'd probably choose Logan. I think he's uh, uh, the guy who had uh, greatness thrust upon him and uh, answered the call pretty resoundingly. And uh, uh, if he'd had a boss other than uh, Bill Sherman, maybe he would have continued to head that particular army. But 
probably uh, probably blackjack Logan. That, that's an interesting choice because somebody who doesn't get uh, a huge amount of press, uh, Western theater for one thing, and a political general for another, but certainly a fascinating character and uh, worth. Uh, yeah, that that'd be he would be an interesting person to go back and talk to. Uh, are you working on anything else uh, writing wise? I am. I've got a uh, I've got a book that will be more of a Simon pure history. I'm trying to get all of the uh, markers uh, in and around Atlanta uh, put into some kind of organized format, and then to fill in the con context a little more and uh today if you pull off the road and try to read a historical marker you're going to get killed <laughs> either by the traffic or by the neighbors and uh right so uh, hopefully it will be something that wives buy for their husbands uh, or maybe <laughs> nobody will buy it and i'll have a whole garage full of them but uh, uh it's uh it's been interesting just figuring out which, which uh which markers come first second and third well, well, good luck with that project and, and safe travels as you explore the markers. Uh, it, it can be risky. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you about this book. Uh, listeners will uh, certainly find it an uh, interesting approach to the Battle of Atlanta, Seven Days in July by Kenneth A. Griffiths. Ken, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I have to say that your uh, kind remarks are uh, very greatly appreciated. Uh, Thank you so very much. Well, it's, it's been a pleasure. And listeners, to you as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.